Good morning and happy Sabbath. We hope that you are emerging from your food coma. Thanksgiving was a wonderful, wonderful experience for us. Some of you braved the crowds yesterday uh, for those Black Friday deals, and some of you are looking forward to Cyber Monday, but amidst the hustle and bustle that is the season as collective minds turn to think about Advent, we have Sabbath. And so we hope that the silence of Sabbath in what can be a very loud season guide us through our time together as we continue talking about ministry and mission. Today we're going to look at two stories that parallel each other in some really interesting ways. Both of them are found in the fifth chapter of Luke and John. So if you have a Bible, you're going to turn those open or turn those on to those two passages. Before we delve into scripture, we're going to invite you to pray. So let's go ahead and do that now. God, thank you for all you have done. Thank you for family. Thank you for reunions. Thank you for connections, for good food. Thank you for the quiet and the rest. For those of us for whom family might be far away, we thank you for your presence because we don't feel alone. We ask that you continue to bless us all, whether we are fans of Tofurky or whether we love Special K Loaf or those of us who still are sticking to those more, more traditional fares. We ask that it be your fair face that keeps us connected, for we pray in your name. Amen. Joey, happy, happy, happy Thanksgiving season. Yeah, you too. Um, you made me hungry thinking about all those foods, although my, my favorite uh, turkey alternative is dinner roast. Dinner roast, yeah. yes, that's a... Uh, for those of you who don't live in Loma Linda, that's a Loma Linda staple. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, very expensive, so we only eat it during Thanksgiving. But it's it's, and it's probably not the most healthy thing either. But yeah, but do you have a favorite Thanksgiving food? Um, I'm a stuffing guy. So oh. whatever whatever stuffing um, people make, that's usually where where I'll gravitate towards. Uh, so not as not as exotic as dinner roll, but. Hey, we all have we all have our preferred uh, things that we that we like to that we like to partake in. Um, Thanksgiving's a great holiday. Yeah. We, we just really really enjoy it. Yeah, I what I like about Thanksgiving is that it's the same type of community and um, getting together with family that you do during Christmas without mm -hmm. all the pressure mm -hmm. of shopping and presents and all of that. Mm -hmm. It's it's one of my favorite yeah. favorite holidays yeah, and time of the year. It's a great, great season. It's a great season. Uh, there's expectations as, as there is with every season, uh, but there's also some opportunities to connect. There's also a lot of stress. So trust me, um, we know, we know the stress, if you, particularly if you're hosting or you're having people. Uh, but we just hope that for the next 45 minutes, you can kind of leave that pressure behind. And as we, as we jump into thinking about these, these two stories, uh, Luke chapter 5, which deals with uh, a man lowered on a mat, and then um, John chapter 5, which deals with a man standing up from a mat. Mm, yeah, and it's particularly with Luke chapter 5, it's it, it's a lot about community, mm. right? Uh, which is also what Thanksgiving is yeah, about as well. It, it is, it is. It's 
Uh, well, let's let's turn and, and kind of look at these two responses that people have. Mm. Uh, there's there's a cast of characters as is as there is in most every story, and in Luke chapter five, the cast uh, contains some of your usual sub subjects. Obviously, there is Jesus, and then there's going to be our Pharisees and our teachers of the law, uh, but then uh, the the guest star is uh, is a man who is being lowered on a mat by a community of people who are digging to get to Jesus. So Luke uh, began simply by saying one day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village. Uh, and of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. It's a really interesting kind of setup that Luke starts to create because you have uh, what in all honesty represents the opposing forces to Jesus throughout the Luke narrative. Uh, Luke refers to these scribes as teachers of the law mm. and they have come and they are sitting together However, then you have uh, Jesus add uh, another group that is also present, and those are the people that have come from every village of Galilee. Uh, so you know that teachers of the law and Pharisees probably uh, don't hail from every village uh, in Galilee. Uh, they're mostly the Judeans, and so you have kind of this really uh, quirky mix of people uh, that, have, that have come. Uh, you've got uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law who actually recognize there's something special about Jesus. Uh, sitting is, a, is an important position within uh, the Jewish mindset because this is typically uh, the position that a student would take as they are learning from the rabbi. But there's also kind of the sense of a crowd that is pressing in. And amidst this crowd, mm. uh, you'll have uh, this interjection of people who are who are attempting to to get their friend to jesus yeah yeah and that's uh that's the imagery that really strikes me about this that press of the crowd and almost how the crowd is portrayed as a barrier to getting to mm. jesus right and especially these teachers of law i'd imagine i mean how homes We've both been mm -hmm. to this part of the world and they've shown us the size of the homes there. The homes there are not huge, right? Even the largest home in 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 Galilee is not gonna be is not gonna be able to fit everybody that all the mm -hmm. all the crowd that are that's being mentioned here. So you're imagining that many of them are out overflowing out into into outside of the um the the actual home itself. Um and so they can't even get in it's not just not getting to jesus they're not even able to get into the home mm -hmm. and being the very important men that they were these teachers of the law and the pharisees i can't imagine that they were just standing in the back mm -hmm. right these are people that would probably be front and center standing in front of jesus sitting in front of jesus and i i it, you know that imagery of you know, it's it's difficult to preach to a group that is hostile to you. And I wonder how how much hostility Jesus is facing from from the this assemblage of people, um, religious leaders who have come all the way from Judea, right? All the way from Jerusalem. 
it's not a short trip mm -hmm. to make it all the way up to the area of Galilee, especially if they're walking or if they're riding. It's, it's a journey that they have to take. And they're willing to come all the way up to this tiny little village to see Jesus. And they're standing there in judgment of him. And it creates, the imagery here is like it creates a barrier that keeps, keeps this man who really needs to get to Jesus away from him. Mm. So it's like this wall of people that's standing in, mm. in the way. And that's the imagery that's stuck in my mind mm. as I read through this passage. It's, it's an interesting image. It's an image uh, that uh, kind of has this question what the real motivation for this meeting is. Um, it seems just by looking at Luke's language, uh, Jesus is teaching um, and people who are ambivalent uh, to Jesus, at least at, it, at the start of the story, it seems, like these Pharisees and these teachers of the law are receptive. Mm. Uh, again, sitting would have been the traditional stance to take when a when a teacher is uh, exchanging ideas with with uh, his students. And then there's a whole group of bystanders that have come mm. to see this exchange. Right, uh, this rabbi from Galilee is going to be cross-examined, or is. Uh, actually getting ready to exchange ideas mm. with the academia. And so there's a lot of curiosity. There is, however, this, this introduction in, in the midst of this interesting imagery that Luke decides to play with. And this is, uh, Luke says that the Spirit of the Lord was with Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord is with Jesus in order to fulfill a specific task. And now we know that throughout the Lucan narrative, this idea of the Spirit of the Lord that mm -hmm. descends upon Jesus um, encompasses much of Jesus' ministry. But in this particular passage, the presence of the Spirit has a specific task uh, and is there for a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And powerful as the interaction of ideas might be between Jesus and those who are surrounding him, that isn't why the Spirit is there. The Spirit is there to help Jesus to heal uh, the sick. And what's funny is no one that is sick, or at least the one sick person in the particular narrative, as you've mentioned, doesn't have access to Jesus, <laughs> which often, um, I, I think, just trying to, to make a connection between what is going on in this story and what is what is happening in our time mm. is that we believe that most of the ministries that happen both individually and corporately have the blessing of the Spirit. And we believe that many good things happen uh, when the church is, is dialoguing and having discussion on Scripture, on theological ideas, but sometimes, at least if we take Luke at its work, sometimes the Spirit is present for a specific purpose. And if we're not attuned yeah. to why the Spirit is there, often uh, well-intentioned as we may be, mm -hmm. uh, we might serve, as you're saying, as barriers uh, to the connect to the fulfillment of the, of the Spirit's mission in a particular time and space. Yeah, that's a great point, that the Spirit has a different agenda than we mm. may be there for. Mm. And it does seem, certainly seem to be the case here with these religious mm -hmm. leaders who come to speak with Jesus. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you had asked them at that moment, what's most important 
the interaction that's happening between Jesus and them or the interaction or this man coming to be mm -hmm. healed. Uh, I mean, I can't read their minds, mm -hmm. but I'd venture to guess that they would say, well, this is the most mm -hmm. important. I mean, this is the meeting of the minds. Mm -hmm. This is Jesus, this upstart new rabbi being tested and being examined, as you said, by this whole panel of people very important men who had made a journey, long journey to be with him. That's the most important interaction here. And yet, and yet that's not, like you said, why the spirit is there. Yeah. yeah and you have kind of this, this group of both upstarts and highly resourceful people who unbeknownst to anyone else in the story have some insight into what the real purpose, at least again, and this is a snapshot uh, with throughout Jesus's earthly ministry and then uh, the ministry of the church uh, and the body of Christ embodied in, in the apostolic church. We're called to do many things, but in this particular snapshot, the primary purpose is, is healing. Mm -hmm. And these men somehow, some way, have a clearer understanding than anyone else, and uh, they they become uh, and they work as as innovators. And I think mm. innovation is is important. Uh, innovation is something that uh, that often uh, and resourcefulness, something that often uh, people that are in love with the status quo. Um, decry simply because innovation and resource resourcefulness uh, forces you to to challenge that status quo. But it seems like uh, there is a place for both in innovation and resourcefulness within within the working of the spirit. Yeah, I just think about how I would have reacted if I was there for, I don't know, an mm -hmm. academic conference, right? And there is this speaker who is presenting these amazing ideas. I'm there to dialogue with him. There's a whole panel of very important people there to dialogue mm -hmm. with him. And I'm there as an observer to see what's happening. And then all of a sudden the roof caves mm -hmm. in and a man is lowered. I mean, how would I respond? I'd be like, wait your turn. Mm -hmm. this, is not, this is not the time and place. There's these important people who have made a long journey Come on, this is not this is not the purpose of this meeting. And yet, and yet Jesus, I mean, what's fascinating is we don't have any record of the conversation that took place before the man showed up, mm -hmm. right? Like Luke doesn't even think that conversation was important enough to write down. What he writes down is what happens after the man shows up with his friends. And that I think is it's humbling and it's also a reminder, like you said that God's agenda is not always the same as ours. And I think that that forces us to consider uh, two primary ways of looking at this, at this idea of how communities forge ahead with, with their mission. The one idea says, well, um, and I, I, I was at a conference a couple years ago that was actually talking about how the invitation for for us as as people of faith is not to be innovators but to be early adapters uh adopters and what that means is simply uh usually uh there's a lot of uh trial and error that that has to occur uh and, and then once that 
figured out. The early adopters come in and they say, okay, uh, this is how we take this idea that has gone through this process of failure and we implement it in the marketplace of life. Mm. And so uh, the whole uh, tenor of the conference was you need to make sure that you are early adopters and you're using discernment as to what ideas are you going to to bring and to spearhead into whatever uh, communal reality God has called you in. And I I was really, really uh, echoing with that particular presentation because I think often we get peppered with uh, gazillion good ideas and, and we have to be quite a bit selective mm. as to which ideas we implement. But it seems, at least in this story, that it's that somebody at some point in the story needs to take a risk. Mm. And that's that I think is is the power of innovation. Innovation always requires risk. Mm-hmm. And just think about uh, the risk that these men are facing. It's the risk of rejection, which I think we all are very averse to. It's the risk of being reminded to stay in your lane or stay in your place or know your place, which I think uh, is, is a risk that we are far mm. too familiar with. It's also the risk of realizing that this uh, this proposed solution that that you think is going to make everything better uh, is actually not the solution that one ought to pursue. And so it's it's the death of hope and, and dreams and et cetera, et cetera. And yet uh, putting yourself out there for rejection or for the death of the dreams or the hopes uh, is necessary at, at some point in order to have uh, the purposes that the Spirit has fulfilled. So I think I'm changing uh, my my position respectfully uh, to the to the gentleman that, that gave this presentation on leadership, whose name I, I won't I won't state because he is way more famous than I am. Um, but I now think that uh, the calling of the Spirit is is to to be to be innovators and to to take those risks of rejection. Yeah, that's a really great point. That there there is a risk involved um, in doing things that help people, mm. right? And just this this past week, somebody um, one of our one of our watchers um, came came up to me and shared with me um, an an element of the Good Samaritan story that we discussed last week that I hadn't thought about, which is. Uh, the risk that the Samaritan took in helping this Jewish man because he was seen as the enemy, when he brought that the man to the inn, there was somewhat of a risk that that he would be accused mm-hmm. of hurting the man, right? Mm-hmm. Like that he that he in helping the man, he actually put himself mm-hmm. at risk of being accused of the one who attacked mm-hmm. him, right? Which is which is an element I hadn't really thought about, but that that is really powerful. Wow. Yeah, that he would risk even that. You know, it would be very easy for him to say, "Man, I, I, there's no way that I'm gonna help this man because people are gonna think I hurt mm-hmm. him, right?" Um, and so, yeah, the, the whenever we help, which is why in a, in, a, in the United States we even have those Good Samaritan laws. Right. Right. When in good faith, you're trying to help someone, you accidentally hurt them, then you can't you're not legally liable for that because there is a fear of that. Yeah. And, and yet um, this man didn't have a good Samaritan yeah. law. 
it was it wasn't named after him yet. So so there is there's there's this risk involved and yeah, and yet mm. that is the risk that we are all called yeah. to take. Yeah. And it's a risk that requires hard work, right? Yeah. This is why the imagery is so powerful, because you have to dig. Mm. Sometimes you have to dig to get <laughs> yeah. to Jesus. Which is which is something that often we we aren't comfortable with. We're often much more comfortable to uh, of speaking about a God that is easily accessible. Mm. Uh, and scripture obviously does paint that picture. Uh, lo, I am with you to the very end. Wow. Uh, but scripture also points uh, the picture of a God who is sometimes hard to get to. Wow. And so you you have to dig. You have to uh, you have to combine that uh, inspiration that that we have to go out and serve with some actual perspiration with getting your hands dirty and cutting your hands and removing tiles and digging through mud uh, because you uh, and that's I think where for me innovation always needs to be accompanied with resilience mm. uh, it's resilience that allows you to mitigate that risk that you're talking about wow yeah the combination of innovation and realizing the risk it's going to take and the resilience you mm-hmm. ne- need to get through mm-hmm. that that's so powerful because when i think about the these men they could have very easily looked at the religious leaders and the crowd and thought been so frustrated mm-hmm. right because if anybody should have been the ones opening a way to Jesus, mm-hmm. it should have been the religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Like they are there specifically to guide people to God. Mm-hmm. And here God has come in, in the person. And instead of guiding people to him, they're standing mm-hmm. in the way. They're, they're a barrier. And that that for me as, as a religious leader in our community, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder for me to make sure that I'm never getting in the way of other people trying to mm-hmm. reach Jesus. Like, I need to constantly think, are my priorities, are my agendas, are my actions getting in the way of other people reaching mm-hmm. Jesus? And that's a humbling mm-hmm. examination because I'm sure there are times where mm-hmm. things I have said and things I've done have actually been a barrier for people to get, in the, get to Jesus. But on the other hand, these four men, these four friends, instead of just sitting there and complaining about the fact that they have that these people who should be opening a way to Jesus aren't, and then getting frustrated and leaving, like you said, they don't let the people who are getting in the way of Jesus keep them away from Mm -hmm. Jesus. They're willing to work hard to still get to Jesus. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be, ideally, that much work to get to Jesus, but a lot of times it is, and yet they don't let those people get in the way. They're willing to even take down a roof in order to get their friend to Jesus. I think that is such a beautiful message, like you're saying. They're willing to dig to get to Jesus. Because institutions provide. They provide a shelter. Mm -hmm. They provide a place, a platform. They provide a a space for the exchange of ideas, which is incredibly important. So Mm -hmm. so institutions play a role until until they don't. And I think that's, that's what the story, and this is why I think you, you superimpose these two stories and you see so many similarities. Mm. You have John chapter 5, where you have this man who has been at the pool for 38 years. Mm. And it's John is so incredibly talented, not maybe at telling stories like Luke does. John is, is much more 
uh, comfortable painting these, these theological pictures that create deep, deep connections. Um, in Luke, it's the Spirit who is present in order uh, for Jesus to, to heal. In John, it's the reality that when Jesus is present, mm. uh, so in, in John, there is no distinction between the Spirit and Jesus. Mm. The Spirit and Jesus are one. And when Jesus is present, the water is going to move. Mm. Uh, that, that language happens two times in John's Gospel. It happens in John chapter 5 in the pool of Bethesda as the water is, is being stirred. It happens in John chapter 11 as Jesus is stirred in compassion at Lazarus's tomb wow. and he weeps. And so the, the, the link there is when Jesus is present, things are going to, to shift. And um, I think Luke would look at that story and say, yes, when Jesus is present, people are going to dig. When Jesus is present, uh, walls are going to come apart. And the, the problem with uh, walls coming apart is, as you mentioned, they make us nervous. They make us nervous mm -hmm. at the deconstruction maybe of an institution or at the shaking uh, of waters. And so uh, John will say, there's a man who's been sick for 38 years. Jesus is present. The water has stirred. And he says, get up. Mm. The man gets up, mm. picks up his mat. And the religious leaders, uh, same language there, yeah. are so distraught, not at the fact that this man is walking, mm. but at the fact that he's carrying a mat. And that, I think, is the problem with religious institutions that have become obsolete. We look at mats instead of men. Wow. And that's, that's when we lose, we lose our, our mission. That'll preach and look at mats instead of men. That's so powerful. And it's true. It's so true. The religious leaders in both of these cases, mm -hmm. right? They are focused on the wrong mm -hmm. thing, right? Mm -hmm. There is a, in both of these cases, there, there are men that cannot walk, mm -hmm. that cannot move, that have been suffering for years. And instead of being moved with compassion like Jesus was, they're more concerned about the protocols mm -hmm. and the rules and were the right words said and and all of that instead of the man mm -hmm. being healed and walk walking it's just it's mind blowing and yet it shouldn't be because i wonder how many times i've made that same mm -hmm. mistake that i saw the spirit moving but i didn't see the spirit because i was so concerned about other things mm -hmm. I, my own agendas, my own plans, my own conceptions of how things should have progressed, that I miss out on the work that God mm. is already doing there. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love what you're saying. I love it because in the context of at least Luke's story, it uh, it gives us some hope. Mm. I think you you uh, have spoken, and I think have spoken well about the fact that as religious leaders, we often fail. Mm. Religious institutions often fail. Religious institutions and structures often uh, become obstacles mm. in people's uh, search for Christ and, and in their digging for a more meaningful relationship with them. Uh, the wonderful thing about these stories is Jesus doesn't need a lot. Mm. Um, in the case of John chapter 5, he asks this question that is almost, uh, almost laughable. Do you want to be healed? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I've been here for 38 years, exposing myself to all kinds of ridicule, yeah. uh, confronting myself with the sheer 
loneliness and the lack of any type of support system because I have a hope. So of course I want to be healed. In the case of uh, Luke 5, it's not even the man's faith that heals him. We talk a lot about imputed righteousness. In Luke 5, I think you have a theological case for imputed faith. Mm. Someone else's faith. Jesus says, is there anyone with, with, uh, with a little bit of faith and I'll make it work? Reminds me of those wonderful altar calls that Billy Graham used to, mm. used to extend to people after his sermons. Is there anyone here? And nobody would get up and he would say, is there anyone that is sick? And nobody would get up. Is there anyone with uh, sin? And nobody would get up until finally the, the call was so broad that it was, is there anyone with a pulse and that is breathing? And I think uh, that is the bare minimum. And that's what is required <laughs> in the Lucan story. Hey, it's okay if you don't have faith. Uh, no. Your friends have faith, and and that that'll do for now. It's okay that you that you can't that you have no one uh, to pull you into the pool as the water is stirring, because I am the water wow. and I am stirring. And so it's it's almost as if religious institutions are are really interested in creating norms, and let's face it, norms are great things mm -hmm. until they're not. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 we're not going to use norms. We just need the most basic common denominator, the lowest threshold. And then when the threshold is low enough, Jesus comes and lowers it even more. And that obviously makes us uncomfortable because we're all about standards. Yeah. You know, I had never thought of imputed that term or that phrase imputed faith before, but that's actually what's happening here. It's, it's it really is fascinating. And this is not the only spot, right? I mean, the Roman centurion and the servant, right? It's because of the Roman centurion's faith that his servant's mm. servant is healed. Mm -hmm. We don't know if that servant believed in mm -hmm. Jesus or not at all. And that's such a powerful, it's a powerful thing that I need to dwell on a little, a little bit, but yeah. Um, and we're not we're not saying that there's no value in institutions because, like you said, there's a reason why institutions are created, right? They they help they help perpetuate a mission beyond just one generation, right? If it's only dependent on the person, the people that start it, once they die, the mission also dies. The challenge with institutions is in the process of creating them, things get calcified, and then there's if they start to lose their flexibility to move where the spirit leads. And if we know anything about God from reading scripture is that God continues to move and God continues to move in ways that his followers often don't expect. Every single time people think they have Jesus figured out, he does something that they don't expect and breaks the mold. And Literally, that's what's happening here. The roof is being broken, but also figuratively, God does that mm. all the time. And so that that willingness to flex, the question is, how do we continue to keep the movement perpetuating beyond a generation, yet still stay a movement mm. with the flexibility to move where God is going to lead us? That, I think, is the $64,000 question. And it is a question where you need your innovators. And I don't know who those are in the, in the church. Um, uh, chances are uh, there, there are voices uh, on the margins that we, that we often consider to be uh, disconcerting because mm -hmm. they're pushing us beyond the institution. I think yeah. 
there need so we talked a little bit about standards um, and we talked a little bit about the fact that institutions do pro provide a platform they provide some cover they provide uh, they actually also provide some legitimacy uh, to to the message uh, they, and they do a lot of good things I you know I, I kind of think about John's story and I'm, I often think how did this folk tale, this myth, uh, become a reality? Uh, was it that somebody uh, was sick and uh, fell into the pool and there was a splash and then um, something good happened? Was it that God, seeing uh, the faithfulness of, of his people, um, decided to extend some hope to them and so an, an angel would actually come down and stir the water uh, whatever case may be, there is no way that a man sits at the uh, shore at around a pool for 38 years if he's not seeing some results. Mm. So somehow, some way, during those 38 years, this man saw someone get healed, and so there is a great, great deal of good work being done in institutions that are people. Uh, there are people that through the legitimacy or the platform or the resources of the institution are being deeply black. But there are also people for whom life within the confines of that institution is completely, completely uh, zapping them of mm. religious vigor and vitality. And the question, I think, is are we mature enough to realize Mm. that other people might find the mission and the meaning for their lives and have the Spirit's mission and meaning for their lives be fulfilled outside, outside of the confines of the pool mm. uh, where the water is stirring. Wow, that's a challenging question. But I think it's one that every person is, who is a part of any kind of institution, religious or otherwise, needs to ask mm. because often... The, the trouble with that institutions get into is that the survival of the institution becomes the number one good, right? The number one goal is how do we perpetuate the institution rather than the mission for which it was first created. And what seems to be, what seems to be the case of us, whenever we read in scripture of people missing where God is moving, is when we lose, like you said, when we lose that focus on the men and focus on the mats mm -hmm. instead, where we start to lose sight of the people that who God loves and who ha he has a heart for, especially those who are sick, mm -hmm. who are in need. Um, the lesson did a powerful section on uh, the immigrants and foreigners, mm -hmm. which is a big theme throughout the, um, I mean, whatever, whatever our pol pol political stance is in, the, in all the prophecies, it's always what the orphans, the widows, and the foreigners, right? Orphans, widows, and foreigners over and over again. That's the message um, because those are the ones who were at the fringes of mm -hmm. society who are most susceptible to being hurt and being taken advantage of by society. And so God has a heart for those people. And whatever, whatever we're doing, if those are not people that we are caring for, then chances are pretty high that we are now in a space where God is no longer at, mm. where God has moved and we have not moved mm. with him. And that, 
I think that is that is a question that we need to ask ourselves over and over again. Who are the people that God has called us to care for? And are we truly caring for them? Because if we're not, then chances are God has moved. Yeah, sobering words. Sobering words because uh, Adventism, I think, as a as a institution, isn't really well equipped to answer those. Hmm. Uh, we're much more comfortable sitting at the feet of Jesus, having the theological discussion. Hmm. That's kind of how we were created. That's kind of the fuel that fed our our DNA in an age where truth was seen as attainable in an age where arguments were respected and in an age where the same overall sources of authority were recognized. So if I make an argument uh, to a to a people uh, that that are that have the same set of Christian values and the same sources of authority about why my particular movement is more aligned with what the Spirit is doing than your particular movement. If there, if those are, if the presupposition of the conversation is that we both share some of the same uh, cultural values and some of the same sources of authority as we've been mentioning, it's a conversation worth having. I think the problem now is. Uh, those presuppositions can no longer be had. Those mm. presuppositions no longer hold water. Mm. And so the question becomes, is my job to go into the broader world and say, These, this is the truth of the Sabbath, and uh, this is the truth of the second coming, and this is the truth of the state of the dead, um, or... Is my primary job to go out in the world and say, you have inherent value. Um, I know that you that is a message that you often don't hear. My job, not to make you an Adventist. I'm not mm. an Adventist pastor. I am an ambassador for Christ. And so mm. my job primarily is to get you to connect with the story of the gospel, which is not about the Sabbath, although there are sabbath implications to the gospel the gospel isn't about the sabbath or the state of the dead or the sanctuary or the, or the second coming uh, those are all part of the story but the story is not about those things the story is about a person who if you dig hard, deep enough or if you're attuned enough will shake the will stir up the reality of your life and will give you water and you will never be thirsty again that and so my job mm. is to connect you in some way to that person and then once you're connected to that person uh to have faith in the spirit mm. that the spirit will lead you to connect to a community where you best will live out now mm. the purposes that God, that person has in, in mind for you yeah wow that is so powerful that all these teachings and doctrines that we get from scripture are important but if we miss the person behind all of those teachings mm. we've sort of missed the point mm -hmm. and when we connect with that person what we know about that person is like you said he's going to stir up our lives he's going to stir things up and are we ready to step into that space because even for the people that he heals, Jesus does stir things up mm -hmm. for them, right? Like Jesus 
this man comes, he's obviously come so that he can walk mm -hmm. um, in, in Luke chapter 5, but Jesus forgives him for his sins, right. right? Which is what he does first, which is kind of a fascinating thing. Like, I mean, obviously Jesus knows more than we know about this situation, but it is a fascinating thing mm -hmm. that he does initially uh, before he gives, mm -hmm. the thing, gives the man the thing that he most hoped for. Mm -hmm. Or maybe that was the thing that he most hoped for was recognition that his sins were forgiven. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, so here's, I think, where, where Luke is brilliant at telling the story. Um, he has Jesus ask a question, mm -hmm. like any good teacher. And again, it's a question intended to upset the equilibrium. What is yeah. easier, to forgive this guy's sins <laughs> or to tell him to walk? Yeah. Well, obviously, it's easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Um, we often, you know, we often step in to spaces uh, where we get to minister with that as the one thing that is that we are sure of. That mm. is the one thing on in our back pocket. In this case, though, what Jesus is saying in a cultural world that prioritized my status before God um, is that only God had the capacity to rectify that status. And so by Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, he is actually making a theological claim about mm. himself, right? He is saying, look, I'm God. There's many people throughout the history of Scripture uh, that have called people and caused people to walk. Mm. There is only one person throughout the history of Scripture that can say the relationship between you and I is rectified. Mm. And again, that's me. And wow. that theological claim is what upsets the equilibrium. That theological claim is what actually gets people to shake and shiver. That theological claim is what gets people to, to say, he is blaspheming. Had Jesus simply said, okay, walk, it would have been great. Fantastic, Jesus. Thank you for the magic act. Let's mm. move on. But see, the upset, the, the water that we're saying is shifting is because of the claims that Jesus is going to make upon your life based on who he is. Jesus is not Adventist. Hmm. Jesus is more than that. Mm -hmm. Jesus is not um, any other denominator that you would like to place there to describe who he is. Jesus is more than that. One of the earliest confessions that the Christian church came up with was, uh, was Jesus all. And that is intend intended to be vague and intended uh, to be all-encompassing. The theological claim that Jesus is making is one of transcendence. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem with institutions is we're not very good at transcendence, mm. because institutions, by by de facto, have to have borders. Mm. Um, and so, not that there's anything wrong with the borders. I think we've said that, and we've hedged our bets there. Um, so many good things happening within the Adventist church. But Jesus is transcendent. And so, um, maybe it's time where our uh, approach to, um, to people when we share the gospel needs to be as transcendent as the goal as the god we share in the gospel mm. wow wow yeah yeah and we're not calling for like you said an abandonment of 
of Adventism, but what we're saying is that God is, like you said, beautifully, God is bigger than, he transcends Adventism. So which means that as we look at the people of God and as we look at the work of God, we have to recognize that God is going to be doing powerful mm -hmm. things outside of the bounds of what we draw mm -hmm. as Adventism. And honestly, that's one of the things I love about Adventism is it was always meant, well, from the beginning, it was meant to be a movement. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be not something that we drew lines upon, around and said, define clearly, this is exactly what it means to be Adventist. I mean, there, were, there has always been that tendency, but in the beginning, our pioneers pushed back on those tendencies and said, let's not form walls and mm -hmm. create firm barriers. Let's just say that we're following Jesus, and as we do, we're going to learn more things mm -hmm. about him, and we're going to challenge each other, and we're going to question things, and we're not going to always agree, but we're going to keep on following mm -hmm. God, and let's be that movement. And the moment that Adventism fully loses that desire to be that movement. And we've already seen, we've, we've gone through histories where, where we've kind of leaned more towards the strong barriers, right? In different decades of our, our history that we've, we've been more firm barriers and looser barriers and whatnot. The moment that we lose all desire to be of movement and settle down and put down roots and create those walls, the moment we move from, like you've said beautifully many times, from being a tabernacle to a temple that's set, that's the moment that I think Adventism loses its ability to fully follow God. And it's, it's not saying that you can only follow God within Adventism, but it is saying that maybe Adventism... Within Adventism right now, I think we can still fully follow mm -hmm. God. The moment we set down those roots, I think we start to lose that ability. Yeah. And and the moment we, we start being triumphalistic, I think one of the things that um, the more I talk to people uh, in church administration or uh, in academia or just people that go to church and have given uh, this church so much, um, there's kind of from both sides, there's this yearning to go back to our origins, um, which I think is a, it, it, it's a better place uh, than we are now, but it's, I, don't think, I don't think it's the place where God would have us. Mm. Uh, Josiah Litch preached a, a powerful sermon, mm. uh, one of our early Adventist uh, pioneers, come out of her Babylon. Mm. And Litch, by Babylon, Litch uh, meant uh, all of the other denominations from from whom our Millerite brethren and predecessors were coming out of, I uh, I would much rather uh, have a sermon now that retains that movement capacity that you are that you are calling for, <laughs> while looking that, while saying that the spirit of God is so transcendent that it is working uh, mm -hmm. in Babylon. Uh, because there is no, there is no sacred and profane. Those lines are lines that we have that we have drawn out. When it when you subject your life to the lordship of Jesus, everything becomes sacred. Mm -hmm. uh, when you subject your life to the lordship of Jesus, mm -hmm. these barriers uh, begin to dissipate, and so it all belongs to Him. Both the Adventist, the Methodist, the Presbyterian, the Episcopalian, and add any other denominational family that you wish, if you have people uh, that have subjected their life 
to the lordship of Jesus within those institutions, then God's will for those people will happen a lot of times in spite of those institutions. Mm. Um, and so I think, I think Adventism is both at a, at a space where we are uh, have to wrestle with this internal desire to calcify that you're that you're talking about, but where we're where we're also um, secure enough in who we are and in our corporate identity to say what we are looking for is not to convince but to cooperate. Mm. And I think that is a shift that I, that I still that I still look for, um, where uh, in the end, what Jesus comes, to, to take as a bride that is that has cooperation hmm. as their primary value. You know, it is true that we humans have a tendency to define our identity in opposition with other people, mm -hmm. right? We, we find our identity in how we are not like other people. Mm -hmm. And as long as we clear those demarcations, then we feel comfortable about our identity. But in scripture, um, especially in the New Testament, there is this idea that it's not really about it's not really about competition about demarcating how we are not somebody but about who we are mm. for right now there are we have to be faithful to the old testament and things in scripture where jesus does where god does um, um in the mosaic law to clearly de demarcate like these are the lines that are to mm. separate you from the people around you right but when you progress to the new testament there does seem to be a breaking down of those barriers. Mm -hmm. You see that very clearly, even with Jesus being crucified and the and the temple, mm -hmm. the, the 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 veil being torn. This idea of barriers being broken, and then throughout um, the Book of Romans, all of Paul's letters, this idea of no no Gentiles or Jews, no Greeks, no Jews, no women, no men, like this this idea of the the barriers now being broken down. That's that's very clear throughout this New Testament that that is the direction that God is trying to take us. And so that's not easy for us because that's not the way that, that I, that we typically think of, you know, growing up as an immigrant in this country, I often thought of my identity as being what I was not. Mm -hmm. And so um, like, because when I'm around, when I'm around, the majority of people who are not Koreans, I, I really lean into my Korean identity. But when I went over to Korea, I realized the vast majority <laughs> of people there are Koreans mm. is my identity. Then I started waffling in my identity. Oh, well, uh, being Korean is not enough, right? To define my identity. That's the trouble we have whenever we try to identify those lines of what we're not. And instead, just focusing on who we are as children of God, that should be our primary identity, the identity that God gives us. That, that identity transcends, right? Every creed, every tongue, every nation, gender, ideology. I mean, it's, the New Testament didn't have churches or institution, but it did have powerful schools, right? right? Paul, Peter, Apollos. And I think Paul says something about that. Yeah. Um, and I think Paul says something about the uselessness of attempting to define yourself based on a particular school with its own valuable and valid approaches to to scripture and to interpretation its own practices but paul, paul kind of pushes back against that idea that that is our pri 
primary marker. Mm. And so I think if we are going to uh, to minister effectively to the groups of people that you are mentioning, um, Adventism isn't big enough. Mm. We don't have enough resources. Uh, We don't have a big enough footprint in the world. But there are other great... uh, partners that we have that are doing great work moved by the spirit um what would it look like if we chose to cooperate with them and to infuse our own adventist flavor into into these these structures um i know just something something to to mull over um but as you mull over our time is done i know you are asking uh, yourself is there any particular point or reason them for the Adventist Church? And the answer is absolutely mm-hmm. yes. Um, as, a, as a thoughtful partner in conversation, uh, aid to the broader discussion on who God is, I think we have some enormous things to contribute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's, alas, a conversation for maybe some other time. For now, we're out of time. Joey, won't you, won't you go ahead and pray for us? Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you for being a God who moves, because if you weren't, there's no way we would have been able to reach you. You made that move out of compassion for us. You always make your moves out of compassion for the people that you love and you've created. So help us to also move alongside you, not to move away from people, but to move towards these people that you love, that you care for, that are also your children. Help us to be moved with compassion as you are, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing, however God may be moving you, our prayer for you is that this week the waters will be stirred. Mm. God bless you. We'll talk to you next week.